Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1008. In the first half of today's show, David Lorelow welcomes Donnie Ecker, bench coach and offensive coordinator for the Texas Rangers. We learn about what an offensive coordinator does, and what it's like to work alongside associate manager Will Venable, director of hitting Cody Atkinson, and new Rangers manager Bruce Bochy. We also hear about coaching players such as Marcus Semyon, Josh Smith, Evan Carter, Josh Young, Ezekiel Duran, and Nathaniel Lowe. Finally, Ecker shares how important it can be today to study pitching if you want to successfully teach hitting. Gosh, I mean, I think this goes back to the general idea of learning, which is, you know, if you want to be a good quarterback, make sure you understand, see the field from a linebacker's position, see the field from a free safety's position, right? If you want to be a good linebacker, understand the position from a quarterback. Same thing. I mean, I think this really goes back to, gosh, 2000. 15, 14, 15, 16, and picking Derek Johnson's brain and Nate Yeski. I mean, I can remember over a decade ago spending time with four pretty established pitching coaches and just, you just hear them talk about what they're trying to do and, and the simplicity of it, yet the quality of it. And then you just, you start reverse engineering those things. And as much as we want to sprinkle in this, this mentality that, you know, we're the aggressors and we have the bat. We don't have the ball. In the second half, David Lorela has the tables turned on him as Ben Clemens interviews him for Fangraph's Backstories. We hear about David's time at the Detroit Institute of Arts, to working in the ticket office at the Boston Ballet, to moderating a Red Sox message board, before getting his foot in the door interviewing baseball players. David also tells us about getting started at Baseball America, before moving to Baseball Prospectus, before ending up at Fangraph's. And his favorite baseball memories, including the first major league game he got to see, as well as catching a no-hitter with his five-year-old daughter. Ben also asked David about some of his favorite interviews over the years and how he developed his interview style. So yeah, it's sort of second nature. It's just, hey, you know, let's talk and see what people have to say. Yeah. Whenever I'm asked, how do you get players or managers, whomever, to say so much? My stock answer is I ask them questions that I think they're interested in answering. And uh, stay out of their way. Baseball players love to talk about baseball. You know, it's not complicated. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder to head on over to the Fangraphs.com shop. We've got hoodies, mugs, and shirts. And of course, our Fangraphs ad-free memberships, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Browsing the website without ads is easy to recommend, and it's especially nice if you enjoy using dark mode, just one of the many perks available to Fangraphs members. It is thanks to your support that we can do everything we do, from the articles to the leaderboards to the roster resource pages to the podcast to the projections to just plain keeping the lights on and everything else. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Donnie Ecker, Texas Rangers bench coach and offensive coordinator. Donnie, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We spoke this past summer, of course. I interviewed you for print for my Talks Hitting series. And uh, one thing I learned, Donnie, from that conversation is that you are, I don't know, a workaholic, I guess I would, would say. So what does a workaholic in your position do during the offseason? Man, <laughs> I want to be careful with that workaholic word. I love what I do. and. It, it really like it takes what it takes in terms of being responsible to serve other people. So, you know, that sensitivity to, to some of those words, but I love what I do. So I'll try to frame it that way. And with that being said, I, I, there really isn't an off season at the highest level. So I think if anything, it's a time that we all can go a little bit wider in our scope. And really all that means is let's zoom out a little bit. Let's focus on some of our weaknesses. Let's not lose sight of our strengths, but let's let's get the body right. Um, let's reassess and and then let's let's build a plan for wherever each guy is at in their career. So, how much of your off season, Donnie, is actually working with players as opposed to sitting down and looking at a lot of data and video to bring to the players in the spring? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I live here in Dallas, so we, we have a handful of guys that have either moved here or or chosen to stay here. Those guys are day-to-day. You know, everyone has a unique script for what they need, both mentally and physically, to be ready for spring training. So we have some guys that have been at it since October. 
We have other guys that started in November. You know, every single player on our 40 man and in our minor league organization, they have a specific offseason plan that they took ownership of and that we supported. So it's no different at the major league level than it is our A-ball guys. So we have, we have boots on the ground here in Dallas where we're, you know, a little bit more focused uh, into some technique stuff. And then we have guys that are working with their hitting coaches all over the world. And who are some of the guys in Dallas that you've been talking to and working with, you know, this offseason? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with Marcus Simeon. He, he lives here and he um, he really just leads the charge for, for what it looks like uh, in terms of taking care of his body, training, his cage work, his discipline to his detail of his routine. So, you know, having Simeon living here and, and having younger guys, Mark Mathias and, and Josh Smith and Nate Lowe, those guys around him to train is, it's been a real treat for me. Anytime you're building, whether it's just this offensive department or, or an entire organization, right? And this is no different than Silicon Valley or NBA teams. You're, you're looking for when the team goes from being coach led to being player led. And we're starting to get real ownership. And it really starts with those guys like Simeon. And how does Marcus Simeon think about hitting? You know, is he a cerebral analytic guy or is he just sort of a bare bones? Hey, I'm a hitter. I hit. Yeah, he, he's really unique. It's a it's a cliche statement to say he's unique. But here's what I'll say. Physically, he operates off of some of the, the highest uh, vibrancy of just fill. Like kinesthetic, kinesthetically, he really needs to fill certain things to be at his best. Yet, usually guys like that, that transitions into to mentally how they want to game plan and stuff like that. He's very different. So physically, he's high on the fill spectrum. Mentally, he's he's one of the more advanced guys in terms of what he wants to look for when probabilistic thinking with pitch counts. Um, so he's a really unique guy to, pre- to to be prepared for to make sure he has what he needs in the game. You mentioned Josh Smith. Uh, he's a player that I actually don't have a lot of familiarity with. So tell us about Josh Smith. Yeah, kind of a throwback. Um, you know, he's a part of that that Ezekiel Duran trade with with Gallo, and just a guy that can that really controls home plate very well. And he's he's had a great off season. Um, he just does a lot of innate, unique things that you know we value in the industry values. Came from LSU, just has really good work habits. You know, he can play on the dirt, can play on the grass. So I get excited about the positional versatile players that, you know, as they're in the evolution of building a more anti-fragile path that is not as exposed as much at the big league level, you know, guys that can do that, but still find a way to get on base a couple times a night and score runs are, I mean, they're incredibly valued and they create a compound effect on the guys that hit around them. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago building a department. Uh, to a large degree, you're going into, I guess, year two here in Texas. What changes from a year one to a year two? What do you hope changes? You know, I think we can, um, for lack of a better analogy, we're, there's two things. One, the relationships are just, they're deeper. There's more trust. And then two, you're able to do more at the line of scrimmage. And that's that's a real thing. And And it's just the idea that, we can solve problems um, in multiple ways, both individually and then as a group. So nothing's more important than that trust relationship vector. And, you know, when you don't have an off season to really connect the way you want last year, you have a limited spring training, no matter how you, how you slice it, when that scoreboard comes on, it's different. And just going through that fire with each other, going through, you know, some more losses than we wanted to, I don't look at that as negative. It, it was really spearheaded, just like a, a deep, deep callus for us as we moved in the off season um, and, and really gives us clarity on what we want to build. So look, there's no excuses ever in year one. You, you got to go. And we did, and we took some strides, but year two, we're still looking for that, that ability um, to really own it and, and have the players own it. So the systems in place, the language, the messaging, uh, the ability to be flexible to each individual, feel really good about where all the systems are top down. And now it's about really, um, you know, having players take ownership of that and, and just making sure that we're doing our best job coaching every single day. 
The system is the same, Donnie, and uh, a lot or maybe all of the hitting coaches are the same. Is that true or have you made any changes in that department? Everything is intact from uh, we had to replace one hitting coach in Able. So that's it. Right. So you have the continuity there, but it's very notable that there is a new manager this year. So will anything be different with Bruce Bochy at the helm? Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that anytime you change at the very top, in particular, when you're you know bringing in a future Hall of Famer, you're going to want to lean on his wisdom and find out what's important to him and dissect that and and figure out you know how we can make this better so we've had those talks boach is is so open-minded you almost need to challenge him to to get the stuff out because he's so respectful so we, we've had some great talks on offense and hitting and you know i really try to operate off of like two principles and one of them is is what stood the test of time and We've had some great conversations on, you know, what's stood the test of time in the last hundred years and and uh, and how we can connect to our people and our building to get the most most out of the offense and the most out of our people. So Bochi, he's been awesome. And what do you think maybe has not stood the test of time? Something that you have learned about hitting that maybe old school hitting coaches haven't had had exactly right, I guess I could say. Yeah, gosh, it's it's a question I get asked all the time. And I really, I stay away from new school, old school. I, I still am not, not really sure like we've ever figured out what that means other than we, we create an unnecessary divide. The thing that I try to be mindful of is the best in the world. They're not philosophically swayed to the extremes. So something comes out, whether it's tech or a way that somebody's thinking about something and you go all the way to the right or you go all the way to the left. So that's really where our blind spots are at and that we we try to avoid and we try to be very neutral on. <laughs> so I think in, a, in an age of information and the next best thing keeps popping up, you know, simplicity is still the most unique thing out there. And that, that's really what we try to avoid is no matter where we go, what do our human beings in front of us need and, and and the, the second filter of that is, does it show up in the game? So just try to avoid the extremes, focus on what stood the test of time in human beings and make sure that it goes through that, that last filter, which is, does it show up on the field in production? When we did the interview at Fenway Park last summer, one line that you said that sort of stood out to me is, quote unquote, hitting is the messiest phase of any sport in the world. Can you maybe address that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we could bring a hundred guys in the room and, you know, we ask a hundred of them, hey, what makes you a good hitter? And we're probably going to get 90 to 95 different answers. Then you ask them, okay, walk me through your routine. You get a hundred guys, you're probably going to get a hundred different routines. And then you put a guy in the batter's box and you throw the same pitch to him. 20 inches of vert, three inches horizontal. It should feel like it's got carry. It should feel like it has some cut. It's from a 63 inch release height. And you line up a hundred guys and they describe that pitch differently a hundred times. Now it's flat. Yeah, it's got a bunch of carry. And then on top of that is from the time they were babies, they've all been organizing their body to solve problems. So, I mean, just starting there, it's like good luck, right? <laughs> so then you go into actually having in stadium data. And if you just filter out what you're getting from Kinetrax and you just filter out solutions. Hey, let's just, let's just study. Let's really try to tighten this up. And when, when balls are hit between 95, you know, over 95 between this many angles, what do these guys do? If you just look in that bunch, you're blown away by the ranges and the ways that guys compensate and sequence up to solve problems. And so it's funny the the more objective information I've gotten on real problem solving at the major league level against major league pitching, which I do think is very important to say versus private sector controlled setting in a cage, the more, you know, we just stay very humble about the uniqueness of how they do that and making sure once again, we don't stray too far to the extremes to, to cover our bias versus what matters most, which is these guys hitting major league pitches, hitting it hard and, and doing so in proper angles. How much do you talk, Donnie, to the pitching guys? Quite a bit. What are the type of questions that, that you will ask them? 
you know, and vice versa? Gosh, I mean, I think this goes back to the general idea of learning, which is, you know, if you want to be a good quarterback, make sure you understand, see the field from a linebacker's position, see the field from a free safety's position, right? If you want to be a good linebacker, understand the position from a quarterback. Same thing. I mean, I think this really goes back to, gosh, 2015, 14, 15, 16, and picking Derek Johnson's brain and Nate Yeski. I mean, I can remember over a decade ago, spending time with four pretty established pitching coaches and just, you just hear them talk about what they're trying to do and, and the simplicity of it, yet the quality of it. And then you just, you start reverse engineering those things. And as much as we want to sprinkle in this, this mentality that, you know, we're the aggressors and we have the bat, we don't have the ball. So I don't get into the semantics of, of like, you know, we're going to attack and we're going to be aggressive. Like, I don't, that doesn't resonate with me. <laughs> we can move aggressively and we can move with a purpose, but don't get it twisted. We don't have the ball in our hands. And these guys have a specific way that they're attacking us and they're doing it as an industry. And it's okay to think of it as that we have to defend that. And I think that's what's different about our sport. Every other sport, when the ball's in their hands, they're on offense. So kind of rethink what it means to be at home plate. And it's it's my biggest takeaway for any hitting coach that I speak with or, or younger guys coming up in the game is like, go understand pitching, go understand catching, and then reverse engineer that and, and then think about your hitters. And with the proactive and reactive in mind, I've been told several times by several people in the, in the past few years that hitting will never catch up to pitching. Do you think that's accurate or do you think hitting is making inroads? You know, I'm, we're, of course, talking analytic you know, development here in training. Yeah. I, you know, with all respect to that, I've heard that phrase so much. I just, it means nothing to me. I don't really know what it means because all I know is tonight, if we're playing a game and we can find a way to score six runs, we win. So I don't, I don't connect to it at all. I do think we can pull back the curtain. And once again, we can look at this a little bit more macro and we can say, look at all the sports, you know, Nick's, it took Nick, Nick Saban being beat by Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence in a very up-tempo, no-huddle RPO system for him to go timeout. I'm tired of getting beat. I'm going to go hire Lane Kiffin. We're going to evolve our offense and we're going to be able to play. So I think that that language and that space is more for the higher-level decision-makers to to always stay on top of, if pitchers are doing this, what what kind of personnel do I need where over 162, we can create as many scoring opportunities as possible. So I think of it maybe more from a little bit of a, a business and a front office lens. Cause I'll just, I just never take the field or go into a day ever thinking that the pitcher has the advantage. And I do want to go into a little bit of that role, you know, the front office idea in, in a bit, but first you've brought up uh, football, I think three times now. To what degree yeah. do do other sports really meld with baseball with strategy and thought process? I mean, it's I can't speak for other people, but it plays a heavy role for me. I think football does. I, I mean, I, I would honestly say that Silicon Valley and business plays the biggest role for me. And here's why. In our sport, what's unique is that every single night we have to perform. Right. And, and it's this world of an invisible handshake where if production does not happen, you're not invited back. So it's this invisible handshake. We know it. It's there. So then you get to work. And, and I think what's unique about business is a sales salesperson or, you know, you go and um, when I was younger, I got to uh, to work an internship for the Google performance team. And every single day they have to perform. And that's that's baseline. On top of that, while they're performing, they have to learn, they have to maintain curiosity, and they have to exude the types of behaviors that lead to production. So that's that's been an inspiration for me. I, I think that way is every single day we have to perform. We don't get to play on Sunday and then have five days off before our next game or six days off like the NFL or college football. So business is a beautiful place to study and and it's not as much about the numbers and all that. It's more about I have to perform today while still learning, while still being a good teammate, while still, uh, you know, 
excluding behaviors that drive our systems that make production happen. And that's a that's a lot. And a big part of your job is to make sure the Rangers offensive machine runs smoothly. But you are not a hitting coach. You are an offensive coordinator and you have also had bench coach on your title. So you can maybe clarify those a little. And now with Will Venable being hired as, I believe, an associate manager, how will that impact your role? You know, a heavy amount of my work will still be making sure from the major leagues to the Dominican that, you know, offensively that we stand for something and that we are, you know, there's clarity with who we want to be, how we want to go about it, all the way from, you know, how we're aligned to scouting, how we're aligned with the front office, how we're aligned with trades. It's all about alignment and unity. Um, and a lot of things can interfere with that, but that maintains the priority. And as far as the the other, you know, bench coach duties, I think in short, it's it's always about taking your entire staff and then figuring out, you know, how do we divide all this work really so that, that our manager has what he needs to to execute and operate in the way he does. So, you know, in terms of game strategy and, you know, in-game decisions, I'll still be involved right there with Boach with whatever he needs. And I think that's the fun part is there's a lot of things that a lot of people can do. The exciting part is, you know, for myself or or Will Venables, who's been awesome to get to know, is how do we best serve the Texas Rangers based on the people we have right now and our manager to make sure he has what he needs to be at his best tonight? So that's how we think about it as a staff. And it's really getting rid of all the ego and then just all hands on deck. What are your conversations like, Donnie, with Cody Atkinson? That's something I've thought about a little since talking to you because I've spoken to Cody and as far as hitting minds goes, I would think you guys, if you sit down over a beer, I think that would be a pretty uh, pretty heavy conversation. Yeah, Cody. Uh, I mean, we've I hired him back in Cincinnati, so I've I've had a bias to to him. And I mean, man, first and foremost, incredible worker, almost almost unhealthy. You know, just an example in the last week and a half, he's been to four different cities to work with our guys. Back to a lab in Marucci. You know, for a guy that ha- has uh, another child on the way, a second kid, and he's married, he's he's so committed to his job and to the players that, you know, we almost need to tell him, hey, man, like, you need to take a vacation. So he's just as, as complete as I've been around in terms of that, in terms of creating relationships, actually having the competence to help hitters at their job. And then just being a really good teammate. So we have great talks. We have, um, we have great arguments. So that, that's what I appreciate about him is we can disagree in a really healthy way and then kind of bob and weave our way to, to what we ultimately want to do. And, you know, ultimately with him as the director of hitting and, and me in this, this position, you know, we're making a lot of decisions together and he's, uh, he's great to work with because you can challenge him and, you know, one thing I think the it's like a wish I would have for the entire sporting industry is, you know, people getting comfortable giving feedback and then people, you know, becoming more skillful at receiving feedback. And he's one of my favorite people to give feedback to and get feedback from. And he, he just has a really good neutral way that he takes feedback and then he goes and then he makes it better. Um, and, and it's a quality of his that I really appreciate. And I would love to hear uh, an example of something that you and Cody have disagreed with, with hitting. You know, he would, uh, I wish he was on here right now so he could defend himself, but I will, um, I guess I'll take my shots. But, um, you know, a lot of times we shift to our biases and, you know, I think one, like one really good, healthy argument is on what are we going to do in the Dominican versus what are we going to do in A-ball? And, uh, you know, we were, we were going back and forth and this is in terms of system wide. How do we take guys from each level? And, you know, he had a couple years head start here than I did. So I came in year one. I was a little bit more sensitive to let's make sure we crawl and that we're compliant down below. You know, strategically, there's some certain game planning things that we wanted to do, which we're sensitive towards because it's the right balance of you know, protecting value creation while still trying to figure these guys out and give them some, some free reign. So I wanted to go a little bit more compliant. He wanted to push the gas pedal. Ultimately we went his way and and he was right. He knew these guys were ready for a little bit more than, than what I was ready to do. And 
it ended up being a, a really good debate where we brought in several people in the hidden department. I think I got outvoted like seven to one. So it was like an easy, uh, I had no say so after that, <laughs> which we really value in our hidden department. It's, it's really fun, but yeah, we, we went back and forth on that and I just said, okay, but if, if we're walking 3% down there, it's, it's your ass, you know? And he's like, don't worry, like trust this group. And he, he ended up being right. So most of the time he's right. Yeah. Seven to one is uh pretty bad odds against you. Yeah. They, they uh, that was good though. They were comfortable telling me like you're, you're, you're off on this one, dude. And what about at the big league level, Donnie? Have there been any times where Tim Hires has looked at you and said, you're nuts. That's not how we should be doing this. I don't know if he said it that way, but, um, you know, Tim's so, he's so good. Not only has he been there and done that, but he's, he's actually really good at what he does. And I try to be very careful. I have respect for people that have been at these levels a long time. But one thing I just try to be mindful of is I want to be very careful that we, that celebrating longevity is not the same as celebrating somebody that's really good at their job and they impact people. And I've, I've just been in places and, and watched stuff where, you know, it's cool that you've worked somewhere 16 years. It's cooler to me when I, when I line up a bunch of people and they tell me that how you've, how you've helped them in their life. So that, I think that's what's beautiful about Tim is it's like, man, he's won a world series. He's, he's been in the playoffs multiple times, uh, five years in a row in Boston of a top three offense in every category. And sometimes in his work every day, you'd think it's his first day ever on the job just because of how humble he is. So I got to kind of push that out of him because there's things he's felt and seen that I've never felt and seen. So he's been great. Um, he's, he's awesome to work with. I lean on him so much. It's, it's just freed me up a lot to kind of shift more towards some of the in-game decisions and being prepared for, you know, some of the pitching stuff and, and more on the managerial side. Let's talk about a few players again before I let you go, Donnie. Nathaniel Lowe went from a decent hitter two years ago to a really, really good hitter this past season. How and why did that happen? He's wired internally in a in a way that is it's going to give give him every opportunity to be to be special. And I'll say everything everything changed for me this the second I saw Nate walk out of a clubhouse with a professional camera. And then he came back two hours later and it was pretty early in the season. Mind you, we had three weeks spring training. You're, you're driving everything through self-interest early on, right? You're, you're not standing up there saying, this is what we're going to do. And this is who we are. And we got to do that. Like you stay away from all that and you flip it around and you say, what do you want? Like, what does it look like for you? What does a good season look like for you? And then we, we build a plan through that. So like the psychology of self-interest, especially with today's learner is super important. Taking that to even a, a deeper level, if we thin slice that, you know, not many guys go out and buy a professional camera to go take photos. So the moment I saw that, I, I, I almost realized I wasn't coaching him the right way. I wasn't talking to him the right way. And it's really because I just hadn't have had the evolved relationship that I needed to, to be at my best for him. And and that word that comes out when I saw that was artistic. And I just started thinking about like, oh my gosh, like he likes to toe tap and leg kick spread out. You know, he is artistic with what he feels based on what the pitcher is doing. And, you know, immediately and no way, shape or form, I'm saying this is why he got results. Like he got results because of the work he put in. But I think it really helps us environmentally to understand these personality traits and, and what brings them alive. And every time I, I talk to Andy, I think about that as he, he is an artist and let's make sure that his prep and his game planning and everything kind of is drafted in that same fragrance so that he can be who he is. And, and that's, uh, that's what I think about with Nate. I've, I've had other players that are, are a little bit more artistic and a little bit more freelance. They do all that. And then you just, you just put a little bit of structure around some things. And Nate does a tremendous job in game at knowing, um, you know, what he wants to look for. So he's got this amazing artistic, artistic way that he goes about preparing and, and how he wants to fill in the game. And then you match that with a guy that's, willing to sit on pitches. He's willing to do some certain things that he really captures a lot of value from. So excited for him and, and kind of, you know, just feel like he's just getting going in his career. 
On the subject of guys who are just getting going in their career, you mentioned Ezekiel uh, Duran earlier. What makes him tick? Fearless. And I should shift that word a little bit. I mean, everybody has some element of fear, but where that shows up in a high performance culture is this kid is so comfortable being himself. You know, I'll give you a short story of how I know it's real. On his major league de- debut, he came into the cage. He had his AirPods in with his Latin music. And before he ever came up, right, we, we have systems, once again, systems in place for, for how we communicate with all of our hitters, all the way down from what do they like to wear in the cage? Are they a headphone in, headphone out guy? What kind of music do they like? I mean, we, we really want to know every single detail about these guys. And a part of that is, so when a guy does come up, is the environment changing him or is he being true to who he is? It was such a unique thing that this kid on day one in a cage with Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager and Brad Miller and Mitch Garver and Nate Lowe, he came in and he owned his preparation. He owned his routine and he did it in the way he wanted to do it. And from there, it's just hard to um, not really pause and just appreciate the ownership of that. So that is that sums it all up for me is it's one of the greatest superpowers i think that we can give these athletes is can they go into the noisiest complex messiest messy environments and and kind of look at themselves and go like yeah i know who i am i'm good and he can do that now on top of that he can really impact the baseball he can play in the grass he can play in the dirt he really grew last year and he's having a great off season and just looking forward to watching him continue to grow josh young is uh, a hitting nerd true or false Special, yes, true. Yeah, what like what makes him such a hitting nerd? What do you and Josh Young talk about? Gosh, Josh, uh, Josh drives that bus because you will, you will bore him if you just stick to to standard stuff. So, you know, a lot of our Josh is right now actually, you know, in in Baton Rouge at the uh, Marucci Lab, just trying to you know do a little test and see where he's at here in the middle of January. Josh is. You know, everybody that meets him kind of knows this, but he's really a throwback. You know, he, he kind of reminds me of how people talk about Peyton Manning and, and some of those quarterbacks that are just, they're in it, man. They love it. You know, for example, every morning Josh wakes up and, and into his, his Slack channel is a major league pitcher that has a game plan attached to it every single day for the entire offseason. And it's a little bit of an exercise that we do with him in particular, but he's He's recreating what it feels like to prepare that day all the way from how would I train? What fills do I need? If we're facing Valdez, we're facing Cole, what angles do I want to set up? Where are my eyes? What's the discipline of my eyes that day? And then just what are those in-game adjustments for me? And that's something he's like enthusiastically attacking. And you just know like when guys want that type of preparation, it's um, you're going to bet on those guys every single time. I would like to ask you uh, about one more player, uh, Donnie, and then uh, sort of a bonus question at the end. Evan Carter, a lot of publications have as the top position player prospect in the org. What can you tell me about Evan Carter? He's going to be a really, really good player. <laughs> there's just not much to, there's not much to not like. And I'm, I'm still, you know, building a relationship with him. And, you know, I have never been in a dugout with him. And I'm looking forward to, those moments where we, we get to continue to, to grow, but a very direct and convicted personality. He knows, he knows what he wants to do. He knows how he wants to do it. Uh, once again, we go back to that word ownership. He, he knows what's valued of him and he owns it. You know, the tools, everybody knows about all that, what kind of player he can be in center field, what he can do at the plate. He's just got a really a great personality to match that. that I think it's going to really allow him to be a very consistent major league performer someday. And the bonus question, Donnie, is something that I wasn't planning to ask until you hit with the uh, fourth uh, football analogy. So who is going to win the Super Bowl? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm a 49er, 49er fan, so I'm going to uh, give you that, that biased answer right now that I, I, I hope it's their turn to uh, finish this down. Yeah, I would not mind seeing that. I'm a Packers fan myself, so I no longer have a horse here. My horse didn't make it to the uh, postseason gate this year, so a rough year. Yeah, this is the first time Kyle Shanahan has had a quarterback that can make about five plays a game that are off script. And it's he's so good at his on script. Um, you know, they call it window dressing in the NFL, which is here's our structure. We're going to run out of this personnel group 95% of the time. 
it's basically like the equivalent of like, we have 10 plays, but we have over a hundred ways that we window dress it with motions and shifts. And all it does is it creates eye confusion for a defense. And then you get, you know, gap integrity gets lost, coverage get lost, some of those things. So you got this Brock Purdy guy that's, you know, he manages the run game. He controls the stuff, the line of scrimmage. He makes the throws he's supposed to throw in a system that, you know, if you, you press play on the film, like Kyle Shanahan's one of those guys that he can create 15 to 20 very open routes. He's been doing it his whole career. And then that thing that Brock brings is he can get them out of, you know, the blitz pickup or the line doesn't cover something. Brock can slide. He can buy some time. He can, he can do all that. Um, you see that at the college level all the time, but it's just an added element that gives Shanahan some, some freedom. Um, it's, it's been fun to watch. And, you know, every week people keep saying, He's a rookie. He's a rookie. He's going to have a bad game. And he might. And he has every right to have a bad game. It's just to know schematically how protected he is with what Kyle Shanahan does as a play designer and a play caller. It's It's been fascinating to watch. Is Brock Purdy a good lesson, Donnie, for somebody in your position or maybe a Bruce Bochy in that a player might be a whole lot better than perception if he gets the opportunity? Yes. You know, I don't believe in making comparisons. Like it's, it's not fair at all. Like, especially in the NFL. I mean, you are, you were at, if you're a quarterback, you were at the mercy of who's designing your plays. You know, what's your system like? What's your O-line? I mean, you know, um, what's his face with, with Buffalo, their, their Josh Allen, you know, he has Brian Dable for those years. He's clean and efficient, doesn't turn the ball over. Brian Dable leaves. Josh Allen leads the league in interceptions. And now, Brian Dable's in New York and all of a sudden, you know, their quarterback is efficient and taking care of the ball. And it's like, they have a really good system. So I don't compare, but you do think about like where we built our roster. Maybe a guy's a three on another team, but maybe he's a four in our system and our culture and our lineup. And I, I think it's, it's okay to think about, is this guy more valuable here based on our people than he is over there? So maybe that gives us chances to, to go find some people that that blossom and create a compound effect for us. And not to take away from your point, because it is a great one. It is, I don't know how front offices do it. You're trying to balance out this win now versus how do we find out if we don't give them ample at bats? And it's why I don't. It's why my favorite answer is I support whatever you do. I just want to focus on creating the solution. So whether or not you want this player to get at bats or this guy, awesome. Let's roll. And let's just figure out how to help him be his best. So it's a tough thing. There's so much talent now. It's stockpiled. And there's a lot of guys that they don't ever get that shot. And even to take it to the next degree, there's a lot of guys that are getting that shot, but they're they're not getting that shot against the opposite hand. And that's a very real thing right now as well. So last question, Donnie, and it may be the hardest one that I that I ask you, but who is your dark horse in the Rangers system? Who is the hitter? that maybe you like a little bit more than public perception or even some other people in, in the org? Gosh, I don't know. I don't think I can answer that. I, I like them all. And to be honest, I have no idea what people rank any guys. You know, we put blinders on in terms of every single player that walks in that room. We're not like, we're going to coach them as if they're going to be a major league all-star. So I don't care where they're ranked. I don't care what their height is or their size. If he's five foot nine, why can't he be the next Dustin Pedroia? So we got to coach them hard. We can't put boundaries on them early on. You don't wait till somebody's an all-star to treat them that way. You, you treat them that way from the second they walk in the door and it's, it's everything. So that's how I think about it. There are so many guys across the league that I root for, you know, and I won't mention names, but I just root for them to, to get that next opportunity. And, and it's tough, you know, some off seasons, People make moves and it and it uh, pushes people down and that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But there's so many good players across this league and you know we're starting to see that. Now spoken uh, like like a smart coach, like a smart offensive coordinator, Donnie. You know, thanks again for being a, a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, you got it, man. Anytime. And thanks everybody for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Hello, and welcome to another segment of Fangraphs Backstories, where I talk to Fangraphs writers about A, how they got their start at Fangraphs, and B, their favorite baseball memory. Today's segment is with David Lorela. Hey, David, how's it going? 
Hey, Ben, it is doing well. I'm realizing here when you asked me about doing this is that aren't we all supposed to say, hey, we don't like to look forward. We like to stay where our feet are or look forward or something. <laughs> you can say whatever you would like. That's part of the joy of this. I really enjoy uh, getting to hear you be interviewed instead of be the interviewer. Ooh. And that'll be, I mean, I'm normally neither interviewer nor interviewee, but I feel like you're usually on my side of a proverbial table. And today you'll be uh, talking about whatever you want to, which is, well, <laughs> whatever you want to in my narrow constraints. But <laughs> as someone who spends a lot of time asking people questions, I hope you, uh, you are ready to have some asked to you. Let's do it. All right. So, David, how did you end up at Fangraphs? How did I end up at Fangraphs? I guess I don't know how far back I should start. Writing about baseball while well, I've been doing it now for a few decades was not really in early in my adult life. I worked at the Detroit Institute of Arts for a while. I ended up moving to Boston and stayed in the art stuff, like working the ticket office of the Boston Ballet. There are jobs here and there. I ended up working in biotech and data management for years. But during, you know, some of the, you know, art stuff and, you know, ballet stuff, I started writing, really moderating a Red Sox message board. You know, back in the day, it wasn't blogs so much as message boards. And that ended up having me interviewing a bunch of Red Sox minor league players. And that really was the start. And this goes back to, say, 2003, 2004. So that's a good uh, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. So you just like walked up the players and talked to them. That's so cool. It's hard to imagine that from my perspective as a non-interviewer. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not really that difficult, I guess. And I really didn't think of it that way at the time either, maybe because I wasn't, you know, like I wasn't a 20-year-old still in college looking at these players as like, wow, these are, this guy's in the minor leagues. You know, to me, it's, yeah, dude's in the minor leagues. And I guess things worked out that the first player I talked to was very good. So the interview went very well you know, a long forgotten draft pick who never made the major leagues named Bull Vaughn. He was actually drafted one round before Jonathan Papelbon. So close to being Mo Vaughn, huh? It's very close. Uh, Bull Vaughn was, if people want to look up Bull Vaughn, I think one of the things that they will find is him doing the rain delay tarp slide in like his skivvies, <laughs> which you maybe don't necessarily want to see that, but that's the, that's the type of, of guy Bulbon was. <laughs> so a good interview is what you're saying. Right. He was very colorful. And from there, you know, I ended, I think Jerry Remy was one of the first people I talked to. And yeah, it's it sort of turned into, hey, this is a fun thing to do on the side while I work my, you know, quote unquote, real job. And I think maybe the first time that I really thought, hey, you know, maybe I should be a baseball writer, like beyond like conceptual is I knew that the then editor of uh, Baseball America was a big fan of a pitching prospect named Abe Alvarez from the West Coast, mm -hmm. who ended up getting a few cups of coffee with the Red Sox. And I had happened to have just interviewed Abe Alvarez. So out of the blue, I contact, it was John Manuel, who I believe now works for the Twins, and said, hey, do you have any interest in interview with uh, Abe Alvarez? And he answered my email saying, well, not an interview, but, you know, if you could write a short feature story on it, it will definitely, you know, we might be interested. So I sat down and wrote, I don't know, maybe a 600-word feature, sent mm -hmm. it to Baseball America. They did some edits here and there, and I was in the print publication. Oh, that's amazing. A true cold call story. Uh, no, it is. It's that sort of taught me that, you know, wow, maybe, you know, maybe I can do this. So, you know, the next thing I knew, I ended up contacting, you know, Baseball Prospectus. Joe Sheehan was still there. I think that's who I talked to. You know, I got hired there in 2006, I believe it was, maybe December 2006. I mean, Nate Silver was still there. You know, Christina Carl so was there. We're talking and, way back, yeah. We're talking way back. And uh, just contributing a lot of interviews there. I ended up contributing to a bunch of other places over the subsequent years, like, you know, Baseball Digest, you know, the Lindy's Annual, which I still periodically contribute to, you know, publication here named Boston Baseball. I think Scout.com had a magazine, Red Sox Magazine, the official Red Sox publication I would write for. 
So just, you know, here and there, I would contribute stuff. And then I have not heard the interview you did with Jay for the series yet, but I'm sure that because he and I were at BP together, I'm sure he talked about that. Yeah. And you guys getting your, uh, your BBWA cards together as well. Which was huge. I should actually uh, do a shout out here. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ben. A shout out to John Parado who's been a, a baseball writer in Pittsburgh for a long, long time. I think a lot of listeners will, will know that name. He was the editor at BP for a while. And I think he played a huge role in Jay and me getting into the BBWAA, which was very big for the industry to get you know internet writers. Yeah, you guys were the first wave of that, I believe. We were in the first wave. There was a lot of pushback whenever, you know, internet writers wanted to <laughs> encroach on, you know, the actual print writers. So, you know, kudos, you know, years later, John, for helping uh, Jay, you know, and me and so many after us get in. Yeah, it, that now sounds preposterous. Like you probably spend more time talking to players and in clubhouses than a lot of the people with cards who work for print publications. But at the time, it was very much not a given. No, for sure. You know, and, and the whole BP thing, it was great. I think I was there for four years, four and a half years. I actually should have looked this up, but I think it was December 2006 into early 2011. And things, and Jay probably addressed this, is, you know, BP went through some pretty rough times for a while. Yeah. I ended up getting, and I think other people had the same thing happen. My salary got literally halved at one point. Oof. Which, you know, I accepted, you know, maybe I was established, but I didn't really look at myself as an established writer. So I thought, hey, you know, I'm just going to, I'll take what I can get. And I kept plugging along. And maybe some months after the salary thing, I was actually in the visiting dugout at Fenway Park before a game, just about to walk back into the clubhouse. I have no recollection of what team was there, who I was going to talk to, but I got a phone call. Not from John Prado, but one of the other one of the people running BP at the time, and said, "Hey, can you talk?" And I said, well, "That's, that's said, not a call you want, right?" And and I said, "You know, I had an inkling what probably what it was going to be." And I said, "Well, I'm about to walk into the clubhouse," and he said, "Well, you know, let's maybe this was on like a Friday or Saturday," and he said, "Let's talk on Monday." I said, "Sure." So I had a few days hanging over my head where I thought, "Well, okay, I'm probably not going to be working mm -hmm. in a, in a few days." Yeah. You know, and I recall that I think they gave me like a month or something, you know, to keep working, you know, which I did. I was happy to do that. But I then, you know, I contacted, uh, you know, Dave Cameron at Fangraphs, and you know, I had become mm -hmm. a fan at that point. And uh, he said, we'd love to have you. So if I am remembering correctly, my last BP interview I did was, I know it was with Kevin Euclid, but I believe it went up on the same day or maybe a day after or before my first Fangraphs interview, which was with uh, Felix Hernandez. Ooh, that is a good double right there. You know, you've got a, I guess that was latter career Kevin Euclid at this point. And I'm sure he was very interesting to talk to. And then the great pitcher of that generation of pitchers, really. No, for sure. is. Uh, I think I made it a point to try to do some, I don't know, more notable people, you know, as my, you know, outro and intro with these. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know who I first interviewed for BP back in 2006. It might have been Craig Breslow. I think Bill James was pretty early in that. Ooh, another good one. Yeah. I do know that at BP, some of the early ones were, I think, Chris Sale in his rookie year. Ooh. I think Mariano Rivera, I think, was fairly early. Wow. I have some recollection. I should really look back at this. I think the first time I talked to Bob Melvin was maybe within the first year at BP. So this is, you know, 2007. He was managing the A's. And why I remember that was I think I asked him for like snapshot scouting reports on like five or six pitchers on the team. And Bob was very forthcoming and gave me some great material. And uh, he came up to me maybe the, you know, some months later, a year later, and said, hey, you know, I kind of got called on the carpet for that as I shouldn't talk so <laughs> forthcoming <laughs> that way. I mean, I, that's what you, you love as an interviewer. This is maybe getting far afield, but I'm just, you have the coolest you know, group of interviews. When it doesn't start with Mariano Rivera, <laughs> it's pretty good. But also Chris Sale is a rookie. They just seem to keep coming. 
And a little bit of uh, behind the scenes here, we're recording this in advance, but you just talked to Andrew Miller and Spencer Strider at the same time, which is, I mean, it's kind of indescribably cool. They both seem awesome. And not only did you get to interview them, but have them talk to each other with you there. Just very cool. I am consistently in awe of, like you said, maybe it's not that hard, but it seems very hard from the outside. And your ability to just consistently pull these down is over the years, too. It's so cool. I was looking as we were speaking here at the blog roll at Fangraphs, and you have published a whopping 1,699 articles. Maybe that's even a little, oh, you just hit 1,700 in the most recent update. And that's amazing. No, that's a lot. And I don't know how many I had at BP, maybe 500. You know, I did hundreds and hundreds back at the, you know, the Red Sox blog. So yeah, it's sort of second nature. It's just, hey, you know, let's, talk and see what people have to say. Yeah. Whenever I'm asked, how do you get players or managers, whomever to say so much? My stock answer is I ask them questions that I think they're interested in answering and uh, stay out of their way. Baseball players love to talk about baseball. You know, it's not complicated. I think the hardest job in the world for me would be to be a sideline reporter and have to walk up to somebody after a game and say, so, Uh, How did it feel to fumble, you know, on that big third down play in the fourth quarter? It's just, you know, they're pointless questions. Yeah, Yeah, getting to ask questions about their craft seems way better. That's the way way I look at it, yes, for certain. All right, so from a, a luminary with a lot of baseball memories like this, I want to ask you a question that is the real reason I did this whole series, which is what is your favorite baseball memory? And this can be anything from whenever you want, Jay spent some time talking about watching a Nolan Ryan no-hitter on TV when he was a kid. Alex Isert gave me three different ones, but pretty much like games he attended. He, he attended the Johan Santana no-hitter and a World Series clinching game. He, he's got a bunch of good ones. He grew up in New York City and had a great time for baseball. But how about you? What is your favorite baseball memory, the one that sticks out to you? Yeah, before I get to what was probably my favorite, one of my, you know, runner-ups would be a, a no-hitter. I was at the Derek Lowe no-hitter at Fenway Park in 2002. And the reason that's memorable isn't so much that it was a no-hitter, but that my daughter, you know, who's now out of grad school, mm-hmm. was at the game with me and she was five years old. And she had been to games each year that she was alive. She's a October baby, so... Uh, Her first game was the next summer, maybe when she was, you know, eight months old or whatever. And my wife and I would bring her and we would stay a few innings and then we would would leave. But we wanted her to go to a game each, you know, every year of her life if if it was going to work out that way. Well, it turns out that with the low no-hitter game, which I believe was in April, for whatever reason, we couldn't get there on time. I think we arrived in maybe like the fourth inning, which was perfect because we're talking about a five-year-old. Yeah, um, you know, at a ballpark, and right. uh, we start creeping up into the you know sixth inning, seventh inning, and she's getting a little restless, and I'm thinking there's a no hitter going on here. You Can't know, there's now. you know whatever kind of cotton candy or whatever we're going to stay here, and <laughs> she was perceptive enough to really get into the idea. Yeah, there's something happening here. So she actually did very well in it. And uh, yeah, so my daughter got to see a no hitter, you know, as a five-year-old, which which was cool. So that is very cool. I like the uh, the escalating bribery technique as well. Uh, I've been to baseball games with friends' kids. And yeah, the bribes need to increase pretty quickly as the game goes on to keep them uh, to keep them pacified. So yes, and I think this was like a 10 nothing game. So had, <laughs> had there been as much as one hit. One uh, hit bite. Yeah, I think we'd have been like out of the seats heading down the, the runway before, you know, the next batter was in the box. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my biggest highlight has to be my first ever game. And because I grew up hundreds of miles away from the nearest ballpark. Yeah, you grew up in Michigan, right? In the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I was uh, about 400 miles from Detroit and probably maybe 300 to Milwaukee. And my father was not, you know, we we were on a farm. So, you know, summers were super busy. My father wasn't really a big fan. But I finally got to a game in my early teenage years in uh, August 1975. And the Red Sox were there, who I had, for some reason you know, adopted as my team to root for. 
Oh, really? Already then? I kind of figured it was when you moved to Boston. No, no, for some reason. And I have before 2004, I would tell people I was just simply born to suffer, (laughs) Uh, which for a long time was people would say, okay, I get that. You know, so my first game and this actually, Ben, this is hitting my brain right now. The first time that I was published was that following winter. I was in a book that maybe I have a copy of called like Anthology of Upper Peninsula High School Writing. And it was just like a school essay that I wrote about that game for an assignment. I had no idea until the book came out that, you know, hey, this is going to maybe go into this book. And it was just me talking about the experience of walking into a big league ballpark and, you know, keeping score and you know, yelling out players' names during during the game. So, so this would have been an uh, old Tiger Stadium? No, this was in Milwaukee. It was County uh, Stadium. Oh, right. The Brewers were AL then. Yes, they were. And, you know, I looked periodically at the box score of that game. You know, the Red Sox scored four in the ninth to come back to win 5-2. Ooh, good one. I believe it was uh, the immortal Doug Griffin, a weak-hitting second baseman, uh, who got the a pinch-hit winning hit. Probably actually pinch hitting for Denny Doyle, I'm guessing, who passed away very recently. You know, left-handed hitting second baseman. But with Fred Lynn's rookie year, he did not play. But Jim Rice was in his rookie year. He was in the lineup. Fisk was there. Yaz was in the lineup. Dwight Evans. And on the other side, George Boomer Scott homered. I recall that was the one thing my father said he wanted to see. Is he wanted to see a home run that game. And he got one. Perfect. But the Brewers had a... Uh, teenage shortstop named Robin Yount played in that game. And most notably, they had an end-of-career uh, DH named Henry Aaron. Ooh. So it's just looking back, it's just like, wow. You know, I saw these legends, you know, my first ever game, which, uh, yeah, you know, that, that makes it, it has to be my favorite memory, right? Seeing Hank Aaron in the first game you ever go to is, that's hard to top. I mean, that is one of the five greatest players, no matter how you slice it. And from everything I know, uh, my wife is from Wisconsin and just talking to her family and Hank Aaron was an institution, you know, even, even though he played a lot of his career in Atlanta, he was just one of the most beloved players in Milwaukee history from his time on the Braves. And then when he came back on the Brewers, that's awesome. (laughs) It's no wonder you've ended up loving baseball so much. That's a, that's a pretty memorable first game. No, it, it's hard to beat that. You know, something else I guess would be a runner-up is any one of a handful of games that I've had an opportunity to be in the press box covering for for, for graphs. I was at the entire seven-game series when the Cubs beat Cleveland. Wow. So, I mean, that's just an incredible experience, you know, and then to go into the clubhouses after the game, it was just, I mean, it's work, right? But, you know, you're in the middle of, of history, yeah. You know, I've been I've been in, you know, I've covered a, a few World Series, you know, including at Fenway. And it's just, you know, you're on the field usually after the clincher. And, uh, you know, there's a whole mess of people there, you know, family and players and a ton of reporters. And I recall standing once just looking up at all the fans who stay, you know, for the winning team. Yeah. And I'm just thinking... These people are, it's a wonderful, wonderful moment in their lives. And, you know, I'm here for it. You know, so what that I'm working? It's just, this is a wonderful experience to be a part of of baseball. Yeah, this is a little bit cutting into my story, but that really reminded me, I think I've told you this before, but I went to the clinching 2004 Game 4 World Series game. I drove overnight from college with my dad, who lived near me at the time, to St. Louis. You know, we're big Cardinals fans. And yeah, the game was no fun for us, but it was very cool. Like the atmosphere of the World Series is just, I don't care if you're working or not, it really feels special. No, absolutely. When the Red Sox, you know, beat the, you know, the Cardinals in the the World Series a few years later, you know, I was there, you know, in the auxiliary press box. And it's a funny memory I have from that game, Ben, was... uh, one of the big hits of that entire series was Johnny Gomes going yeah. deep. And uh, I remember sitting there, you know, sort of typing about the game and trying to figure out how I could write. You know, this is before he hit the ball out that, you know, it didn't make sense to, you know, for Gomes, yeah, why you was know, he right on right to hit instead of Daniel Nava. Johnny Gomes has somewhat of a reputation for being you know, like a postseason guy. 
Yeah. And he has been on some winners and he's a clubhouse presence. So I don't mean to diss him in saying this, but if you look at his postseason line with the bat outside of that one home run, you know, Johnny yeah. ain't done much. But yeah. He, if you're listening at home, he is a career 143, 236, 245 hitter in the postseason. That's not great. Which was crazy. That was the same series as you'll well remember, Ben, the uh, Will Middlebrooks oh, yeah. interference play it you know that ended a game which was i remember that very well because i could not watch it i was at a wedding that was so remote there was no tv and no reception and i was getting little game day updates and that one was very confusing it was crazy and it's just again it's as i'm talking you know memories it's a favorite baseball memory to me actually there were so many memories over the years you know you and i could both name a hundred of them right now Yeah, that are special to us. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's that's one of the great parts about baseball. And we get to be involved in this, you know, as, as our professions now. It's, you know, I used to be, you know, at the information desk at the Detroit Institute of Arts, you know, as a young adult. And I think I worked at a bar part-time. You know, the idea that I would be doing this someday, you know, as a baseball lover, you know, I went to Tiger Stadium with a couple of buddies a lot. You know, yeah. sat in the cheap seats. That's all we could really afford. You know, the idea of actually getting to do this is just, you know, it was foreign. But uh, yeah, hey, it, hey, man, you know, look, some, somehow. If you can get it, it's it's great work if you can get it. That's about how I feel as well. I think that's that's one thing that I don't always know if it's easy to see from the website side. If, if you're reading the website, because we just write about players or talk to players or write about statistics and transactions, but you don't end up in this job unless you love baseball, unless you've had some formative experiences throughout your life that just really drive that home. And every time I, we talk in person, every time we meet up anywhere, like the baseball stories, they're just great. And yeah, I think this series, that's what I'm hoping to get across. And <laughs> I, I don't know how much better it's going to get than your first baseball game seeing Hank Aaron. Like. <laughs> Maybe we should just stop the series here because that is that's pretty special. No, well, I think part of that, Ben, though, goes back to the fact that uh, you know I'm old. <laughs> I know I'm the oldest at Fangrass. I'm older than Jay, so I think Jay likes to talk about being the old guy at Fangrass. But he sure uh, does. I, I've I think, got him beat. I also yeah. have Jay beat. Is uh, I'm the longest tenured person at Fangrass too, which I think is kind of amazing. I've been there. It was like eleven years now. So yeah. well, it's just sort of crazy. Appleman, but uh, no, of people yeah. <laughs> who write, yeah, yeah. So it's just sort of crazy just to stick around at this, you know, this little baseball site. You know, BP at one point when they got things back together, you know, wanted to bring me back. You know, I thought about it pretty seriously. You know, BP is very, you know, they're important. Yeah, they're one of the most important names in the history of baseball analysis. They are. And uh, I decided, you know, ultimately, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to stick with Mr. Appleman and all my great colleagues at Fangraphs. And uh, hopefully at least some people who read and listen to what I have to say and write are happy that uh, that I did. Yeah, I think that I think it'd be a real shame if Sunday notes were hidden behind a paywall. I think those are those are just really cool and such a great entry into like baseball analysis. If you want to know baseball stats, but you want to mix it with hearing what people who play the game think about the game, that it's great. And I, I know a lot of people who don't read much fan graphs, but read Sunday notes. And I just think that'd be a real shame if that was locked away somewhere. So I'm glad you stayed. Hey, when I moved to uh, Boston from Detroit, you know, uh, three decades ago, Peter Gammons, man. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, and he's still around. It's just a pleasure to, uh, you know, run into Peter at the ballpark and just... Actually, you don't talk baseball with Peter so much as you listen, and that's what you want to do. There were people who you encounter and you realize, okay, you know, he just he's doing all the talking and get me out of here. With Peter, it's the opposite. It's like, don't stop talking. Your stories, your knowledge is just, it's amazing. People call him a legend. That's an understatement. I think I'll close this one out with a Peter Gammons anecdote of my own. I saw Peter Gammons at the 2019 Winter Meetings. Yeah, this is the first time I'd ever attended a baseball event as someone who's working in the industry. And he was walking down the hall, or maybe it was in the lobby. I can't remember the exact details of it anymore. It might have been at one of the bars there. And just a hush fell over. And everyone, all of us, were just like, oh my god, that's Peter Gammons. <laughs> he is just, 
I don't know if there'll ever be another writer who is a legend in the way that Peter Gammons is. You know, Roger Angel, I never got to the chance to see or meet, but it is it is truly impressive the awe and regard with which baseball people hold Peter Gammons. No, it is not uncommon to be uh, talking to Peter and to have people randomly walk up and uh, not even look at you, but, you know, <laughs> reach their hand out to him and say, I've always loved your work. You know, just wanted to tell you that. Yeah. You know, people never do that to me, but as long as they don't walk up to me and uh, punch me in the face, I'm, I'm cool with that. Well, we can't all be Peter Gammons. In fact, none of us can be, except for him. But uh, what a cool job to have that you get to see Peter Gammons and talk to him. Well, David, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about both how you got here and your favorite baseball memories. I'm sure that you and I could do this for hours more, but... In the service of keeping it to a reasonably linked segment, I think I'm going to call it here. Again, thanks so much for coming on and doing this. No, it was fun, Ben. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Donnie Ecker for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a friend or two. Word of mouth helps us out. After you have browsed the Fangraphs.com shop and considered an ad-free membership, Don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on the many cool things we have going on, free to your inbox. That does it for us this week. We hope your off-season is going well. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.